live from the Chamber of Hunters studios. This is Haunting You. I am your host, Leslie Reed. I'm John Shaw. And I'm Keone Hutton. Happy Halloween, everyone, and welcome to the Haunting You podcast. It is, of course, our favorite time of year, and we are so excited to be sharing Halloween here with you. As has become our tradition, I don't know if we can call it a tradition because we've only done it once so far. This will be number two. We're starting the tradition. We are starting a, we are establishing the tradition by successfully doing this the second time. (laughs) (laughs) But we want to celebrate Halloween with you by sharing some more of our favorite spooky stories. If you want to go back and listen to our first set of, we call them campfire stories, then definitely go check out episode 64 that we put out last Halloween. There, John read, I want to say, a dramatization from Batman, The Audio Adventures. Uh, I read Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, and Leslie read Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. And honestly, I don't know if we can we can do better than that because it was it turned out absolutely freaking fantastic. I loved it. <laughs> but we're going to try here tonight. So Les, would you like to like kick us off? Yes, uh, I'm gonna you know attempt attempt two, maybe one. We'll we'll see what uh, all the editing comes out as. But the first one I want to do is to start us off with another and Edgar Allan Poe poem, Annabelle Lee, which is really pretty and very much not necessarily spooky, but very appropriate for the season. It was many and many a year ago, in a kingdom by the sea, that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee. And this maiden, she lived with no thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child, and she was a child, in this kingdom by the sea. But we have loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabel Lee. With a love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that long ago, in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud, chilling my beautiful Annabel Lee, so that her highborn kinsman came and bore her away from me to shut her up in a sepulchre in this kingdom by the sea. The angels not half so happy in heaven when envying her and me. Yes, that was the reason, as all men shall know, in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind came out of the cloud by night Chilling and killing my Annabelle Lee. But our love, it was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we, of many far wiser than we, and neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabelle Lee, and the stars never rise but I feel the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And so, all the night tide, I lie down up by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride, in the sepulchre here by the sea, in her tomb by the sounding sea. All right. So this one, I don't think would actually count as a, uh, a spooky story. But uh, if you've listened to the podcast for any, any number of, of years here, you guys know I'm a, I'm a giant Batman fan. So I wanted to read... Uh, a piece from just it's just a quick monologue from from the Joker from the Killing Joke by Alan Moore. It's one of the quintessential Batman novels. It's it's fantastic, but not for not for younger viewers or readers. Um, anyway, so I you know it, I don't want to set the stage too much. It's it's a complicated bit of business. Um, 
so anyway, the the whole gist is Joker gets caught in a in a bit of a thought process about memory. Joker's monologue from The Killing Joke by Alan Moore. Memories, I never touch this stuff. Memories can be so treacherous. One moment you're lost in a carnival of delights, the poignant childhood aromas, the flashing neon of puberty, all that sentimental candy floss. The next, it leads you somewhere you don't want to go. Somewhere dark and cold, filled with damp, ambiguous shapes of things you'd hoped you'd forgotten. Memories can be vile, repulsive little brutes, like children, I suppose. <laughs> but can we live without them? Memories are what our reason is based upon. If we cannot face them, we deny reason itself. Although, why not? We aren't contractually tied down to rationality. There is no sanity clause. So when you find yourself locked onto an unpleasant train of thought, heading for the places in your past where the screaming is unbearable, remember, there's always madness. You can just step outside and close the door on all those dreadful things that happen. You can lock them away forever. Madness is the emergency exit. <laughs> Next up, I want to go back to my childhood. I had a book when I was a kid. We all called, had this book. We all had this book. If you were around <laughs> our age, you definitely had this book. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, <laughs> uh, collected by Alvin Schwartz. And like this was probably my first collection of, of spooky stories. And I would sit in my room under the covers with the flashlight reading through these or reading them to my little brother and, you know, jumping out and, and, and startling him as, as we go, but naturally, but I think this book left a major impression on young, impressionable eight-year-old Keone Hutton, (laughs) but specifically the story I want to read from this is called the Wendigo. And as all of you listeners who have been following us for a while know the Wendigo has become um, the the major character of the hunt that we're building. And this was the first time that I came across a Wendigo legend anywhere. And I want to share all of that with you. A wealthy man wanted to go hunting in a part of northern Canada where few people had ever hunted. He traveled to a trading post and tried to find a guide to take him. But no one would do it. It was too dangerous, they said. Finally, he found an Indian who needed money badly, and he agreed to take him. The Indian's name was Defago. They made camp in the snow near a large frozen lake. For three days they hunted, but they had nothing to show for it. The third night, a windstorm came up. They lay in their tent, listening to the wind howling and the trees whipping back and forth. To see the storm better, the hunter opened the tent flap. What he saw startled him. There wasn't a breath of air stirring, and the trees were standing perfectly still. Yet he could hear the wind howling. And the more he listened, the more it sounded as if it were calling the Vago's name. 
Dafego, they call. Dafego. I must be losing my mind, But Dafego had gotten out of his sleeping bag. He was huddled in a corner of the tent, his head buried in his arms. What's this all about? The hunter asked. It's nothing, Defago said. But the wind continued to call to him, and Defago became more tense and more restless. Defago, it called. Defago. Suddenly, he jumped to his feet, and he began to run from the tent. But the hunter grabbed him and wrestled him to the ground. You can't leave me out here, the hunter shouted. Then the wind called again, and Defago broke loose and ran into the darkness. The hunter could hear him screaming as he went. Again and again he cried, Oh, my fiery feet! My burning feet of fire! Then his voice faded away, and the wind died down. At daybreak, the hunter followed Defago's tracks in the snow. They went through the woods, down toward the lake, then out onto the ice. But soon he noticed something strange. The steps Defago had taken got longer and longer. They were so long, no human being could have taken them. It was as if something had helped him to hurry away. The hunter followed the tracks out to the middle of the lake, but there they disappeared. At first, he thought that Defago had fallen through the ice, but there wasn't any hole. Then he thought that something had pulled him off the ice into the sky, but that made no sense. As he stood wondering what had happened, the wind picked up again. Soon, it was howling as it had the night before. Then he heard Defago's voice. It was coming from up above. And again, he heard Defago screaming, My fiery feet! My burning feet! But there was nothing to be seen. Now, the hunter wanted to leave that place as fast as he could. He went back to camp and packed. Then he left some food for Defago and started out. Weeks later, he reached civilization. The following year, he went back to hunt in that area again. He went to the same trading post to look for a guide. The people there could not explain what had happened to Defago that night, but they had not seen him since. Maybe it was the Wendigo, one of them said, and he laughed. It's supposed to come with the wind. It drags you along at great speed until your feet are burned away and more of you than that. Then it carries you into the sky and it drops you. It's just a crazy story, but that's what some of the Indians say. A few days later, the hunter was at the trading post again. An Indian came in and sat by the fire. He had a blanket wrapped around him and he wore his hat so that you couldn't see his face. The hunter thought there was something familiar about him. He walked over and asked, are you Defago? The Indian didn't answer. Do you know anything about him? No answer. He began to wonder if something was wrong, if the man needed help, but he couldn't see his face. Are you all right? He asked. No answer. To get a look at him, he lifted the Indian's hat. Then he screamed. Ah! There was nothing under the hat but a pile of ashes. You know, after learning all that we have about the Wendigo story and then reading that, like, what did Defago do to attract the Wendigo? I need backstory now. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the cool things about the Wendigo story, though, is there's it, it's not just one set story. 
there are multiple aspects and multiple retellings that change, you know, all sorts of the aspects of it. So there's a lot of there's a lot of a lot of area to play with when you're working with the Wendigo story and a lot of these scary stories. The last story of our podcast is a the translation of a story called Diary of a Madman written by Lu Xun in 1918 in China. The original is gorgeous prose, but obviously I will be reading the translation today. <laughs> Diary of a Madman by Lu Xun. At school, I had been close friends with two brothers whose names I will omit to mention here. As the years went by after we graduated, however, we gradually lost touch. Not long ago, I happened to hear that one of them had been seriously ill, and while on a visit home, I broke my journey to call on them. I found only one of them at home, who told me it was his younger brother who had been afflicted. Thanking me for my concern, he informed me that his brother had long since made a full recovery, and had left home to wait for an appropriate official post to fall vacant. Smiling broadly, he showed me two volumes of a diary his brother had written at the time, explaining that they would give me an idea of the sickness that had taken hold of him, and that he saw no harm in showing them to an old friend. Reading them back home, I discovered his brother had suffered from what was known as a persecution complex. The text was fantastically confused and entirely undated. It was only differences in ink and styles of handwriting that enabled me to surmise parts of the text were written at different times. Below, I have extracted occasional flashes of coherence in the hope that they may be of use to medical research. While I have not altered a single one of the author's errors, I have changed all the local names used in the original, despite the personal obscurity of the individuals involved. Finally, I have made use of the title chosen by the invalid himself following his full recovery. Entry 1. The moon is bright tonight. I had not seen it for 30 years. The sight of it today was extraordinarily refreshing. Tonight, I realized I have spent the past 30 years or more in a state of dream, but I must still be careful. Why did the Jow's dog look at twice at me? I have a reason to be afraid. Entry 2. No moon tonight. A bad sign. I went out this morning, cautiously. Mr. Jow had a strange look in his eyes, as if he feared me, or as if he wished me harm. I saw a group of them, seven or eight, huddled around, whispering about me, afraid I would catch them at it. Everywhere I went, the same thing. One of them, the most vicious of the bunch, pulled his lips back into a grin. I prickled with cold fear. Their traps, I realized, were already in place. Refusing to be intimidated, I carried on my way. A gang of children blocked my path ahead. They, too, were discussing me, their eyes as strange as Mr. Jow's, their faces a ghastly white. What quarrel could these children have with me, I wondered. Tell me! I shouted, unable to stop myself. But they just ran away. Mr. Jow, all of the others I saw that morning, what was the source of their hatred? All I could think of was that 20 years ago, I stamped on the records of the past. It has been my enemy since. Though he has no personal acquaintance with this past, Mr. Zhao must have somehow got wind of the business and resolved to take up the grudge himself. He must have rallied everyone else I saw against me. But what about the children? They weren't even born 20 years ago. So why do they stare so strangely at me as if they fear me or wish me harm? I am hurt bewildered, afraid. Then the answer came to me. Their parents must have taught them. 
and tree three. My nights are sleepless. Only thorough investigation will bring clarity. Those people, they've been pilloried by their magistrate, beaten by their squires, and had their wives requisitioned by bailiffs, seen their parents driven to early graves by creditors. And yet, through all this, none looked as fearful, as savage, as they did yesterday. The most curious thing of all, that woman hitting her son. I'm so angry I could eat you! That's what she said, but looking at me all the while, I flinched in terror. I couldn't help myself. The crowd, their faces bleached greenish-white, roared with laughter, exposing their fangs. Mr. Chun rushed up to drag me home. To drag me home? Back home? Though everyone was pretending they didn't know me. That That same look in their eyes. The moment I stepped into the study, the door was latched on the outside, as if I were a chicken in a coop. I had no idea what lay at the bottom of it all. A few days ago, one of our tenants, a farmer from Wolf Cub Village, came to report a famine. The most hated man in the village had been beaten to death. He told my brother, and some of the villagers had dug out his heart and liver, then fried and eaten them for courage. When I interrupted, the farmer and my brother glanced at me, repeatedly. Now, now I recognized the look in their eyes, exactly that of the people I passed yesterday. I shiver at the very memory of it. If they are eating people, I might well be next. That woman scolding her son, I could eat you! Those bleached faces and bared fangs, their roars of laughter, the farmer's story, the signs are all there. I now see that their speech is poisoned, their laughter knife-edged, and their teeth fearfully white. Teeth that eat people. I don't think I'm a bad man. But now I see my fate has been in the balance since I trod on those records of the past. They keep their own, secret accounts, a mystery to me, and they can turn on you in an instant. When my brother taught me to write essays, he would always mark me up if I found grounds to criticize the virtuous or rehabilitate the villainous. It is a rare man who can go against received wisdom. How can I guess what they are really thinking when their fangs are poised over my flesh? Only thorough investigation will bring clarity. I seem to remember, though, only vaguely, that people have been eating each other since ancient times. When I flick through the history books, I find no dates, only those fine Confucian principles, benevolence, righteousness, morality, snaking their way across each page. As I studied them again, through one of my more implacably sleepless nights, I finally glimpsed what lay between every line of every book. Eat people. All these words, written in books, spoken by the farmer, stare strangely, smirkingly at me. Are they planning to eat me too? Entry 4 I sat quietly a while through the morning. Mr. Chun brought me some food, a bowl of vegetables and a bowl of steamed fish, his eyes glassily white, his mouth gaping like the village cannibals. After a few slippery mouthfuls, I could no longer tell whether I was eating fish or human, Up it all came again. Tell my brother, I said to Chen, that I feel stifled inside, that I want to take a walk in the garden. Chen left me without a word, but shortly afterwards unlocked the door. I did not move. I wanted to see what they planned to do with me next. I knew they would not relax their grip so easily, and so it proved. My brother brought an old man in to see me. My visitor approached slowly, head bowed, afraid I would catch the savagery in his eyes sneaking glances at me through his spectacles. "'You seem well today,' my brother said. "'Yes,' I answered. 
Dr. Ho has come to examine you, my brother went on, at my request. Be my guest, I replied. My executioner, of course, come to check how fat I was while he pretended to take my pulse. Presumably his fee would be a slice of my flesh. Yet I felt no fear. My nerve remained steadier than those of the cannibals about me. I held up my wrists to see how he would go about it. Taking a seat, the old man closed his eyes, held my wrists for a considerable length of time, stared blankly a while longer, then opened those terrible eyes of his. Avoid overexcitement, he pronounced. A few days rest, and you'll be fine. Avoid overexcitement? Rest? Of course. They want to fatten me up so there'll be more to go round. You'll be fine. They were all after my flesh, but they couldn't be open about it. They had to pursue their prey with secret plans and clever tricks. I could have died laughing. Indeed, I burst into uncontrollable roars of mirth, a laughter that rang with righteous courage. The old man and my brother blanched at the robustness of my morale. But my boldness succeeded only in sharpening their appetites. The braver the prey, the more glory for the hunter. To be eaten immediately, the old man muttered as he left. My brother no nodded, Etu. And yet, I should have foreseen it all. My own brother in league with the people who wanted to eat me. My own brother was a cannibal. I was the brother of a cannibal. And destined to be eaten myself, this brother of a cannibal. Entry 5. These last few days, I have reconsidered a couple of my earlier suspicions. Perhaps the old man was not my executioner. Perhaps he really was a doctor. But he will still have eaten people in his book of... What is it? Herbs? Li Shizhen openly observes that boiled human flesh is perfectly edible. He must have tried it himself. Neither were my suspicions of my own brother unfounded. When he was teaching me history as a boy, he once told me people could exchange sons to eat in times of scarcity, or then again, while discussing a notorious villain, he told me death alone was too good for him and that his flesh should be devoured, his skin flayed into a rug. For hours afterwards, my heart pounded with fear. A few days ago, when the farmer from Wolf Cub Village told him about the business with the heart and liver, he merely nodded. Nothing surprises him. At heart, he is ruthless, still perfectly ruthless. If sons are fodder for the dinner table, then anyone could be. I used to just let him preach at me, to let his sermons pass me by. Now, I know his lips were smeared with human grease, his thoughts only of eating people. Entry 6. There's darkness all around me. I cannot tell day from night. The Giles dog has started barking again. Fierce as a lion, cowardly as a rabbit, cunning as a fox. Entry 7. I know their ways. They do not want or dare to kill me openly. They fear the vengeance of the ghosts. Instead, they conspire to drive me to suicide. I see through their plans. Most of them. I remember their looks on the street from a few days ago, and my brother's behavior. Their first fondest hope is that I should sling my belt over the beam in the ceiling and hang myself, that they will achieve their heart's desire without staining their hands with my blood. I hear their gasps of jubilant laughter already. Failing that, I could always pine away, melancholy or nerves, though my corpse would have less fat on it. It would still be a corpse. They can eat only carrion. I remember reading in some book somewhere about a fearful, ugly creature called a hyena with terrifying eyes and a fondness for dead meat, capable of chewing the most enormous bones down to a pulp. I shiver just to think of it. This hyena is cousin to the wolf, 
the wolf cousin to the dog. The way the Zhao's dog looked at me the day before yesterday, he's in on it too. And that old man who couldn't look me in the eye, but he couldn't fool me either. It's my brother I feel sorry for. He's only human. He must feel the dread of it. And yet still he conspires to eat me. Has he become hardened over time? Can he no longer see how wrong it is? Or is his conscience in pieces? Does he commit his crimes in the knowledge of their evil? A curse on all cannibals, beginning with my brother. If I am to turn them, I must begin with him, too. Entry 8 They should have been visible to see it for themselves. Suddenly, another visitor. A young man, barely in his twenties. His features a blur, except for his broad grin. He greeted me with a nod. I found no sincerity in his smile. Is it right, is it right to eat people? I asked him. What are you talking about? His smile did not flicker. No one's eating anyone. It's not a famine year. I knew that he, too, was of their number, that he, too, feasted on human flesh. Screwing my courage, I determined to press him further. But is it right? I... I don't understand the question. What a sense of humor you have. Lovely weather we're having today. The weather is indeed fine, and the moon indeed bright, but I will repeat my question. Is it right? No... He mumbled, beginning to sound vexed. So it's wrong. Then why is it going on? It, it's not. They're eating each other here and now, in Wolf Cub Village. Look here, it's written in all the books, in fresh red ink. His face went a ghastly white. Maybe? His eyes bulged. Maybe that's how things have always been. But does that make it right? I've had enough of this. You shouldn't be talking about it. I sprang to my feet, my eyes flying open. He had disappeared. I was covered in sweat. He was much younger than my brother, and yet already he was in on it with the rest of them. His parents must have taught him, and he will have taught his son. Even the children stare at me like wild beasts. Entry 9. Raving flesh, dreading the teeth of others, eyeing each other with fear. Only they could leave it all behind them. How easy, how comfortable their lives would be. Such a tiny thing. But they are all part of it. Fathers, sons, brothers, husbands, wives, friends, teachers, pupils, enemies, perfect strangers, pulling each other back. Entry 10. Early this morning, I went looking for my brother. I found him standing by the door to the hall, staring up at the sky. Approaching him from behind, I placed myself between him and the doorway. I have something to tell you, I said, taking care to keep my voice soft, meek. Go on. He spun round to face me, nodding. A, a few difficult words. Primitive men probably did eat human flesh, but their thinking changed, developed over time, and some of them stopped. They were determined to become human, genuinely human. Those who wouldn't give it up remained reptiles, some of them changing into fish, birds, or monkeys, then finally men, but they remain reptiles at heart, even today. The shame of the cannibal brother before the non-cannibal, greater than the reptile before the monkey. Thousands of years ago, the royal cook of Yi Ya steamed his own son for his king to eat. We all know what's been going on since the creation of the earth itself. That revolutionary, Shu Xilin, a few years back, didn't they eat his heart and liver? Then there's Wolf Club villagers, and last year I heard a consumptive ate a steamed roll dipped in the blood of an executed criminal. And, and now it's my turn to be eaten. I, I don't expect you to fight on my behalf alone against the rest of them. But 
Do you have to join the conspiracy? They'll do anything. Eat anyone. Me. You. Each other. Pull back from them. Change. And we will all live in peace. However long it's been going on for, we can decide to stop today. We can. I know you can do it. Why, when that tenant of ours wanted his rent reduced the other day, to start with you, who said it was impossible? As I began my speech, his lips curled back into a scornful smile. Then his eyes shone with a terrible, savage gleam. When I set to exposing their awful secrets, the color drained dreadfully from his face. A crowd gathered outside the gate, Mr. Zhao and his dog among them, craning forward to listen in. Some faces remained only a blur, as if masked in gauze. On others, I saw the same bleached pallor, the same bared fangs as before, their lips distorted into smiles. I recognized all of them, eaters of human flesh, but I knew they were divided in their thinking. Some believed that the eating of men must go on, because it was how things had always been. Others recognized it for the sin it was, and yet still they ate, terrified of exposure. The more I said, the angrier they became, through their frozen smiles. My brother chose this moment to show his true, unrepentant colors. Clear off, he roared ferociously at them. Where's the fun in gawping at a madman? Another of their ingenious devices to discredit me as insane. But the plot was too well laid. They would never change. And when the moment arrived for me to be eaten, there would be not a murmur of opposition, only in sympathy for my butchers. Death by character assassination. A method tried and tested by the farmers of Wolf Cub Village. Chun stormed through the gate... Though they wanted to shut me up, I was not yet finished with my audience. You can change, in your hearts. Soon there will be no place for cannibals in this world of ours. And if you don't change, you will all be eaten. However many children you have, you will all be destroyed. Like reptiles, by real humans, just as a hunter kills a wolf. Chun chased the crowd away, and my brother disappeared. Then Chun coaxed me back inside. The stifling darkness hung over the room. The beams and raptors shuddered then began to swell, piling distendedly down on me. They pinned me to the ground, they meant me to die beneath them, but I struggled through my illusion, drenching myself in sweat. Change! In your hearts! I gasped. Soon there will be no place in cannib for cannibals in this world. Entry 9 The sun will not come out. The door does not open. Two meals, every day. As I held my chopsticks, I thought again of my brother. Now I know what happened to my sister. I can see her now, in all her heartbreaking vulnerability, only four years old when she left us. I remember my mother's uncontrollable sobs, my brother's efforts to stop her. He'd probably eaten her himself, and all the crying was making him uncomfortable. He had any conscience left. I wonder if mother knew. I think she must have known, even though she didn't say a word about it as she wept. Maybe she just accepted it. When I was three or four, I remember my brother telling me, as I sat in the courtyard enjoying the cool summer evening, that a filial son should cook a piece of his flesh for a sick parent. Mother said nothing to contradict him. If it's alright to eat a piece of flesh, then why not a whole person? But the way she wept that day, the memory of it, even now is painful. How inconsistent people are. Entry 12. Further thought is painful. I now realize I have unknowingly spent my life in a country that has been eating human flesh for 4,000 years. My sister, I remember, died while my brother was managing the household. He probably fed her secretly to us by mixing her into my food. I, too, may have unknowingly eaten my sister's flesh. And now it's my own turn. With the weight of 4,000 years of cannibalism bearing down upon me, 
Even if once I was innocent, how can I now face real humans? Entry 13. Are there children who have not yet eaten human flesh? Save the children. And with that chilling thought, we hope you all enjoyed listening to some of our favorite campfire stories. If you want to hear more, definitely go check out the Haunting You podcast at all of our socials. That's Facebook at facebook.com slash haunting you, Instagram at haunting university, youtube.com slash at haunting you, and of course our website hauntingyou.com. We hope you all have a super spooky Halloween, and we will see you next time. My last words for the night save the children. We are incredibly thankful to all the sponsors who make this show possible, particularly our premium sponsors, the Chamber of Haunters and Fear Expo. You can learn more at chamberofhaunters.com and fearexpolive.com. Check out the Haunting You podcast at hauntingyou.com for more information on everything that we do. Haunting You is a production of the Rocky Mountain Home Haunters, LLC. All audio clips and sound effects are used under a Creative Commons attribution or public domain license from Purple Planet Music at purple-planet.com or the Sound Bible at soundbible.com. Please see the show notes for more information on all the clips used in this episode.